All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge Podcast with Neil Litton. Neil, yeah, we've got Arno Lacoste today. Who is Arno? I am thrilled to welcome Arno to the podcast today. Arno is the Chief Scientific Officer uh, at Orion Biotech. Uh, they are developing a novel cell therapy for the treatment of a debilitating eye disease. Uh, he comes from uh, a, a great experience throughout his career in the cell and gene therapy space. He led uh, a number of programs at Novartis. Uh, which, as many of our listeners know, was the first company to actually develop uh, a CAR-T cell therapy to, and, and the first company to get FDA approval for a CAR-T. Um, and he was there during that time, so I'm really excited to talk to him about that. Uh, and then he, he did some academic research uh, involving induced polypotent stem cells. So I think we'll have a lot to talk about today. And what exactly is Orion trying to do? Yeah, so Orion is um, developing a cell therapy for a debilitating eye disease. It's a, it's a, a basically a, 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 a corneal endothelial disease is the name of the disease. And it's a disease that results in, in blindness. It results from a damage of a single layer of cells in the cornea. And so their thesis is that if they can actually replace the damaged cells with uh, new functioning cells, that they can actually restore vision. And I'm excited to talk to Orno about, the, Orno about this, but you know, they, they've, I think, been in over 100 patients to date, and they've seen some really wonderful and encouraging uh, early clinical results about patients restoring uh, some, some vision. So I, I think there's a lot of proof of concept here that I'm excited to talk to Orno about. It would seem like an ideal application of regenerative medicine, particularly given the limitations of corneal transplants. What do you see the potential here? Oh, I think there's huge potential here. Um, you know, number one, I think this is, is you know, the eye being immune privileged, at least at the, the site of the cornea, is an ideal application for cell therapies to begin with. Uh, you know, um, Orion's approach is an allogeneic uh, approach, right? So I think there's a lot of potential there in terms of to control cost of goods, um, to make sure that this is uh, not only a safe and efficacious uh, you know, product, but one that could be you know, relatively cost-effective and scaled as well, since it's not a autologous-based therapy. So I think you know, that, at, from a business model perspective, I think is also really exciting. Um, and as you mentioned, I think there's a lot of limitations uh, in terms of you know, availability of transplants uh, and, and what patients that are suffering from this disease in terms of their current treatment options. So I think there's, there's a lot here to sort of dive into with Arno, and I'm really excited about some of their early clinical results. And so I'm, I'm excited to, to jump into the discussion. I, I think of a company like Orion now delivering on the types of therapies we were 
thinking would be possible with regenerative medicine outside of cancer and really restoring function. Does it feel like we're moving into a new phase of regenerative medicine to you? I certainly think so. I mean, I think there, you know, there's no question. I think that the field of, of gene therapy has really led the way in terms of regenerative medicine, right? There's a number of approved gene therapy products, right? Spark has an approval for a gene therapy targeting a, a debilitating eye disease based on a, based on a genetic defect. I think companies like uh, Orion and what Arnaud are, are pursuing is this sort of next wave of cell therapies, which I think are still, you know, relatively early, but you know, as they amass more, you know, proof of concept in the clinic, safety and efficacy, I think there's enormous potential for these types of therapies to treat, you know, unmet medical needs, you know, things that are not only in the eye, but throughout the body. And I think the eye is a great place to start. Um, And I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see some, some really exciting uh, developments here over the next, you know, three, five, 10 years. Well, if you're ready, let's do it. Arno, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So today, I am very excited. We are going to talk about stem cells, regenerative medicine, and specifically cell and gene therapies, and your efforts to develop a regenerative therapy to restore vision at Orion Biotech. Before we dive into what you're doing today, though, I want to spend a little time on how the field has progressed over the last decade. You have, I think, a really great vantage point. You previously directed cell and gene therapy at Novartis for 12 years. You were involved in the development of treatments for spinal muscular atrophy, CAR T-based therapies, cell therapies for the treatment of retinal and uh, and, and other debilitating uh, eye diseases. Um, so I'd love to start with uh, a little bit about your background at Novartis. Can you talk a little bit about the programs that you led there and, and what you learned over that time? Sure. Um, yeah, my time in Novartis has been an amazing experience, amazing, amazing part of my uh, career. Uh, I joined Novartis in 2009. I'll explain in a minute why that is actually relevant. And I was hired there to build the company's, the company's first proprietary stem cell platform. Uh, I had directed a, a stem cell facility that uh, was creating human embryonic stem cells and the so-called IPS cells. We can maybe get into the detail of what that, that is a little later before joining Novartis. Um, and this had been also an amazing experience. Uh, there was so much going on, not, not only around the science, but around the, 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 the social aspects uh, and ethics uh, that was involved with uh, embryonic stem cells and, and IPS cells that doing that at that time was fantastic. And then, you know, one question that really kept bother- bothering me was how can I maximize the chances of you know, in my, within the time that I have in my career, have a significant impact on, on, on people's lives, patients' lives, lives, and an opportunity to solve big problems in medicine. And Novartis really uh, provided that opportunity for me for at least three reasons. Uh, the first one was technology. Um, so at the time when I joined the, the tech, the, the company was building these very advanced platforms for what is called high throughput biology and high throughput genomics. So all these platforms that are driven by robots that, that essentially work um, day and night uh, and, and create thousands, if not millions of data points every day. Uh, the second the second amazing uh, thing at Novartis was the quality of the science. Uh, what was really incredibly rewarding at Novartis was the quality of the scientists there and, and really their constant desire to re- dive 
deep into biological mechanisms, uh, molecular pathways, developmental pathways. The goal was really never to just publish papers there, but really to push until at some point a door would open. And our, our understanding of biology and these mechanism, mechanisms made it possible to really create uh, something that would be life-changing for someone else, essentially, a therapeutic ideally. The third thing that was really important at Novartis for me, and I use that every day now, is that there was a culture, not just a culture of innovation. A lot of companies say they have a culture of innovation. There was a culture of constant reinvention, self-reinvention at Novartis. So the, the scientists there, they clearly wanted to create the medicine of tomorrow. Again, a lot of companies say that. But the, the big difference there was that th these scientists were not afraid to question everything they knew about therapeutic design and consider new, new paradigms, uh, such as cell therapies and gene therapies. And so this is why, why I came in. Uh, and, and really consider this. I, I mentioned earlier, I, I joined in 2009 to create an iPSL platform or stem cell platform at Novartis. Remember that the first human IPS paper was published at, right at the end of 2000, 2007, beginning of 2008. And right away, Novartis decides, okay, let's make this part of our platform. Uh, a lot of companies at the time, for those who remember that period, were talking about the potential of IPSs for drug discovery and drug design. Novartis, the, their approach was right away to say, okay, let's go hire that French guy from Rockefeller uh, University and test this IPS thing. Uh, and so I got to create that, that proven stem cell platform there, connected, connected with the, the, the company's high throughput biology capabilities. And very quickly, this led us to understand much better how some diseases could be treated. And for example, to your question about what programs, uh, I worked on, this led us to a new treatment for uh, a, a disease called spinal muscular atrophy. Um, and very importantly, uh, you know, this, this culture at Novartis and this interest in, in cell therapies, uh, cell-based models or advanced cell-based models and regenerative medicine created momentum for additional innovation there. Uh, and so, for example, we realized very quickly that if we were going to use cells as, as therapeutics, we had to be able to engineer these cells. And so that led us to create gene editing platforms there. We started with Zinc Fingers, Talon, and later CRISPR to, to, to use, you know, uh, arcane uh, acronyms maybe. Um, and, and so this, this created in turn some internal familiarity with cell uh, engineering, gene engineering, and this created that momentum within Novartis that led to, uh, you know, Novartis leading the CAR-T wave, uh, and also the wave of new gene therapies for the treatment of blindness and other diseases. Uh, so a very exciting part of my career. I, I know I, I got to, to use and develop amazing technologies, uh, you know, an amazing therapeutics, work with some of the best scientists I've, I've ever met there. Uh, and I also learned how to manage innovation inside a complex uh, uh, organization. So I use that every day, you know, as, as, a, as a startup exec. Um, a huge, huge, um, huge uh, value for me, uh, not just from the point of view of getting to be involved in these new types of, of therapeutics, but also in terms of now creating a company, um, you know, from, from the ground up. 
Arno, there's there's a lot to dive into there. Um, I, you and I clearly share a passion for regenerative medicine. You know, the development of cell therapies, as as our listeners no doubt know. Right? I led business development at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine for a number of years, and and I want to I do want to dive into the IPS um, uh, cells and and the platform that you were you were building in, in a minute. But I want to take our listeners back because I think you bring up a really good point. I want to take our listeners back in time a little bit because the the and I distinctly remember the partnership that Novartis struck with the University of Pennsylvania around the CAR-T program, I think was a major inflection point in the field. That type of thing had never been done, right? I think that really ushered in this new wave of, of cell and, and later gene therapies um, and really put the field on the map, so to speak. And of course, Novartis was the first company to actually develop and commercialize and get FDA approval for CAR-T. Right. So I think you know your time there seeing all of that must have just been incredible. Yeah, so... Uh, the story is there. The story is that, you know, we had internally, uh, you know, within the scientists, but not just within scientists, within the, the, the people who are in charge of business development, in charge of regulatory, in charge of manufacturing, were amazing. J just very unique uh, to be there at the time. And of course, the story is from the patients. You know, some of these patients, pediatric patients, just to put some 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 context. Um, the first CAR-T program, so CAR-T-19, now under, uh, commercialized under the, the brand name Kim Raya, uh, uh, by Novartis, um, targets a form of leukemia, uh, that affects children and, and adults. Uh, and a lot of the, the patients who, who we treated were at, at a stage where everything else had been tried. Uh, that was, they were at the end of what could be done to save their lives. Uh, and so their, their parents, the pediatric patients' parents, entered them in the trials that we were running there. And you talk to the clinicians who worked with us uh, at Novartis about this, and they will tell you some of these patients were on their deathbed in, you know, especially one little girl. I remember this, that story told to me by, by a clinician on her deathbed in June, back in school in September. Uh, so. You know, these, these amazing stories, uh, you know, again, it, it just, just talking to how, how much, uh, how much cell and gene therapies will have an impact, essentially. They already have an impact today, but they will have so much more of an impact, uh, in, in the years to come. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And those stories, I, you know, I don't remember exactly what the, the clinical results were from those early trials, but they were something like 80 to 90%, I think, complete response rates for children that were refractory to all other forms of treatment. So these were really not only groundbreaking, but were really um, uh, sort of, a, as you said, it was a last ditch effort to save a lot of these children's lives that had no, that had failed all, of, all other forms of therapy. So re really amazing um, therapies that were developed. I, I do want to transition back and just talk a little bit about uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and your work at Rockefeller University uh, and then what you were doing at Novartis. You know, as, as you mentioned, you know, IPSCs sort of came on the scene, I guess, kind of the 2007, 2010-ish timeframe. Uh, obviously, Shinya Yamanaka was the recipient of a Nobel Prize for uh, for you know, creating Yamanaka factors and creating induced polypotent stem cells, being one of the people to create induced polypotent stem cells. I think that was in 2012 that he was the recipient. Could you talk a little bit, maybe just for our listeners, could you talk a little bit about what a IPSC is um, and then your work uh, building building th that type of platform at Novartis and, and even before that at Rockefeller University? Yeah. So IPS, 
cells. IPS means in, induced pluripotent stem cells. What does that mean? That means that uh, these, these are cells that have the ability to differentiate into virtually any of the cell types that constitute the human body. That's the, the definition of pluripotent, pluripotent cell. And induced uh, comes from the fact that they are created in a lab by uh, reprogramming readily accessible cells, for example, skin cells isolated for a sim from a simple skin biopsy or blood cells, reprogramming them using what, what, what you mentioned uh, just a second ago, the, 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 the Yamanaka factors, into a new cell type that now has pluripotent properties and are called iPS cells. Uh, and when this technology was first created, it really created a lot of hope that we could create healthy cells and tissues in the lab and then use them to repair defective uh, organs in our body. And so when this discovery was made and, and, and published, the field of medicine started talking about taking skin cells, for example, from a patient with Parkinson's disease reprogramming these skin cells into, again, these iPS cells, and then differentiating these into the type of neurons that uh, are dying in the Parkinson's disease patient, uh, and then implanting them to, to cure that person. Same concept with diabetes, Alzheimer's, and other diseases. So that was over a decade later. Uh, here we are today, and, you know, if, if you look at the evolution of that field, it has gone through so much learning. We cannot say today that, you know, the type of therapeutics that we ho hoped we would have uh, uh, pretty quickly uh, in 2008 exist today. They, they, they don't, they, nothing has been approved yet. Uh, but the concept uh, is still here. And we have learned a lot about what it takes to engineer, reprogram, differentiate, and, and, and importantly, manufacture these, these cells at a therapeutically relevant scale and at a level of quality that, that can uh, uh, provide uh, the FDA with the incentive to, to approve these drugs. And so now several clinical trials are ongoing, uh, and some of them are, are starting to show amazing results. So, for example, just last week, a company called Sema Therapeutics reported that at least one of their patients in a, in a, in a trial that they are running uh, to cure diabetes, one of the patients uh, essentially saw their symptoms uh, reverted, reverted back to normal. Uh, so an amazing, an amazing uh, development. We'll see, uh, you know, how these 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 trials, uh, uh, if these trials are successful. Uh, if they are, uh, if the SEMA trial uh, are successful, we we may be looking at the second high impact ther cell therapy, the, the first. High impact cell therapy in many ways is what we just mentioned, the CAR T cell therapies. This could be the second one, um, with, with just something that really completely changes how we, uh, manage or even treat, uh, diabetes. And of course, we, we at Orion, from what we see in our patients, believe that, uh, our lead cell therapy candidate will have an impact that is probably similar in scale. So we take patients, uh, who are blind and then restore vision. Yeah, and, and I want to dive into that in, in just a second. And I, I think you're right. I mean, the, the SEMA trial is extremely exciting. That's one I've been following for a while. I mean, that technology was out of Doug Melton's lab at Harvard. Uh, and I think the SEMA was acquired by Vertex a couple of years ago. So really exciting to see that that's finally now in, in the clinic. 
and that that's being used to treat patients. So I do want to uh, now transition to, to what you're doing at Orion and, and talk a little bit about the program. You mentioned uh, going after you know, debilitating eye diseases. Um, could you talk a little bit about your lead program and the scientific rationale behind it? Yeah. So uh, our lead program targets a, a type of blindness um, that is caused by a, a, a layer of cells dying in the cornea. So it's in, in one, one word, it's called corneal endothelial disease. Uh, it causes blindness in about 16 million patients in the US, Europe, and Japan. Uh, it's again, it's called caused by the fact that a single layer of cells degenerate. A layer of cells called the, called the corneal endothelium. Uh, if you have this disease today, first you will go blind, uh, and your options are worldwide very limited. Uh, in the in the in the US, in the West, in general, you can get a corneal transplant. Um, We'll discuss in a minute why that is actually also limited. But in the rest of the world, there's just not enough supply of cornea, of donated corneas to, to cure you. And so, um, there's, in fact, there's a gap of, uh, of one to 70. There's only one cornea available worldwide for 70 uh, needed. And so, uh, in, in general, a lot of patients, you know, have no treatment option. The second issue in addition to supply is that Whereas coronal transplant is possible, this kind of surgery actually is quite complex, and there are not enough uh, surgeons who know how to do it well. So there are about 20,000 ophthalmologists in the U.S., for example, and about 1,500 are coronal specialists, but about f about 300 at, at the most uh, of these coronal specialists are act act actively performing coronal transplant, uh, and, and, and most of them, you know, most of them are actually on a learning curve, trying to essentially better their, better the technique. So in general, there's a lack of surgical skills in the West, and there's no surgical skills essentially in the rest of the world. The, the procedure of coronal transplant is also inconvenient for the patient. So when you receive a coronal transplant, uh, you essentially have to, uh, lie on, on your back for several days. It's very uncomfortable. A lot of patients complain about this. And then there's a lot of what we call regraft rates. So the, these coronal transplants tend to, to fail in up to 25% of the patients. And so what we are doing is what saying, well, conceptually, uh, this could all be uh, solved by inventing a cell therapy. Uh, since the disease is called by, caused by the fact that only one cell type and one cell layer uh, degenerate. Let's amplify the, the the cells, manufacture them in vitro, and then simply uh, position them uh, on the posterior side of the cornea where they uh, normally reside. Uh, have the patients uh, let the cell engraft the cells engraft, which takes only about two to three hours, and then they can go home. And from what we see in our patients, this this has showed amazing results. We have patients who come to us blind. Uh, and recover vision, uh, enough vision to drive, and some of them recover 20-20 vision. So, so an amazing, an amazing change. Really, exactly what the promise of cell therapy was. You know, taking patients who had dying uh, tissue, causing in this case blindness, and reverting uh, their, uh, their, their 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 situation to essentially normal, to a healthy state. 
Um, so a lot of hope around this. A lot of uh, uh, corneal specialists and, and ophthalmologists are extremely excited about this. We, we, we get pretty much every day we get uh, contacted by uh, corneal specialists and, and ophthalmologists uh, uh, asking us when when is this going to be uh, available. Clearly, some some amazing progress and some some really incredible early results that you're seeing. Um, what what is the starting cell type that you're using? Um, so uh, we are starting with um, donated corneas. Uh, we take the cells that uh, uh, are needed in the patients uh, from these donated corneas, and then expand them in 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 the lab or in a manufacturing facility uh, at a scale that essentially closes that gap. I mentioned earlier that there's a gap of one corneal need for 70 patients. By taking con by taking the cells, these corneal endothelial cells from one cornea and expanding them uh, in our manufacturing process, we essentially, from one cornea, are able to provide hundreds and in the near future, we'll probably be able to provide thousands of doses uh, from that one, you know, one starting tissue. Um, so essentially, right there, we just completely changed the the the, the supply, uh, the supply situation, and completely solved the, the 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 problem of lack of supply. And Arnaud, there's one actually critical point I want to dive into here. So so you're pursuing a um, allogeneic approach as opposed to an autologous uh, based approach. Could you talk a little bit about the difference between those two and why the eye is maybe an ideal, you know? candidate to go after because it is immune privilege and what that means for a allogeneic based approach? Yeah, correct. So one of the big advantage of this particular cell therapy is we know clinically that these cells are not rejected. Uh, all the patients need is a simple topical application of steroid eye drops to essentially maintain uh, allogeneic tissue. We know that because uh, coronal transplants with this topical uh, steroid treatment are not rejected. Uh, so our cell therapy is not rejected either because it comes from the same the same tissue. And this biologically, and that is pretty amazing, uh, is due to the fact that what maintains the uh, immune privilege of uh, the front part, at least of the eye, is precisely the, the the cells that we transplant. They themselves uh, secret the factors that instruct uh, the recipient's immune system to stay away. And so this allows us to uh, create what you just mentioned uh, is an allogenic cell therapy, meaning a cell therapy that can be manufactured from one donor tissue and then delivered to any patient regardless of their HLA type. Um, this is important because, well, so the, 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 the alternative would be an autologous personalized essentially cell therapy, meaning that we would have, which is the case for CAR-T, for example, we would have to manufacture a new cell therapy for each patient. The cost associated with that would be very, very high. In this case, because we can scale production and treat more than one patient with each batch we make, uh, we bring the, the complexity of the therapeutic and also the cost down to uh, a, a, a huge extent. Yeah, and I think that's a, a critical point for our listeners to understand. 
is, you know, the, the, the first wave of, of CAR T's were all, you know, autologous based. And, you know, th those therapies cost several hundred thousand dollars. Um, I, I think what you're doing, because you're doing an allogeneic approach, there's the potential to significantly reduce the you know, cost of goods to have a, a lower price point for the therapy itself, right? And that becomes, you know, more and more critical as you're going after larger and larger patient populations. Um, and I and I think, you know, I'd love your perspective on this, Arno, but I think for us to really see this sort of next wave of, of cell therapies being more widely adopted, I think we will probably need to get, you know, price under control before we see sort of this this next, you know, next wave of cell therapies really hitting the market and really be, being adopted more mainstream than they are today. But I'd love your, your perspective on that. Yeah, correct. So uh, at this point in time, the, the, one of the main problems with even the cell therapies that so CAR-T, for example, that, that show amazing efficacy, uh, the problem is, 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 is price. The, the cost of producing these, these cell therapies is so high that uh, it's almost impossible as of now to reduce uh, reduce their price to the, the payers and to the patients uh, very significantly. The, the only way that, uh, well, one of the, the main ways to do this is to transform or to transition from an autologous uh, uh, paradigm to an allogenic paradigm. So essentially make these CAR T cell therapies or cell therapies in general, uh, re render them able to evade the recipient's immune system. This, as, as we mentioned earlier, enables us then to treat more than one patient for each batch, batch of cell therapy produced, meaning that we can, we can now start to make economies of, economies of scale, uh, and drive the price of these therapies down. I think that this is going to be, this is a major hurdle in the field of cell therapy right now. Uh, and when we uh, manage to move beyond this uh, problem, uh, the, the impact on uh, patient populations, the impact on the practice of medicine in general is going to be really very significant. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, okay, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about where you are in terms of clinical development. So wh where are you today? What do you know? I mean, you talked a little bit about the safety, the efficacy uh, from, you know, the patients that have been treated so far. What What is the path forward uh, for, for the therapy? And just ballpark, what do the timelines look like? Yeah, so we have treated uh, uh, over 100 patients in, in Japan and uh, other patients uh, outside of the U.S. very successfully. Um, in Japan, we think that we are going to be able to apply for commercialization probably in the next two, three years, hopefully earlier. We'll see. Um, in the U.S., we have to go through the FDA process. Uh, which of course is distant from the, the, the Japanese regulatory process. So this is going to take a, a little longer. Uh, but again, we are in a unique, unique position where we enter this FDA regulated process with a drug which we know works and we, we know it actually has efficacy, very good safety profile. And we have, uh, follow up data, uh, five, at least years of, of follow-up data in the patients that we uh, first uh, that were first treated in Japan, um, saying we have something that really looks like a cure, something that restores vision uh, very long-term in, in in patients. And Arno, could you talk a little bit about the decision to pursue um, initial trials and approval in Japan versus the U.S.? Is is that is that simply an artifact of that's where the technology originated, or was it a, a business decision? Or I'd, I'd love to understand that thought process a little more. Uh, no, so it, 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 yeah, it was decided. It was not 
a business decision. It was um, uh, related to how essentially this uh, technology came to be. The first really uh, uh, research group that started turning this uh, idea of using uh, corneal endothelial cells as cell therapeutics uh, was a group in Japan uh, led by Professor Kinoshita uh, in Kyoto. Um, and they really pushed the concept uh, very, very far. They treated patients, treated a large number of patients uh, for, for, the, for the Japanese system. And they really followed these patients for years after delivering the, the, the cell therapy. So essentially proved clinically very convincingly that the concept works, leads to really, again, amazing efficacy and also has a very favorable safety profile. And so that led us to create Orion, uh, and we created that in the U.S. Uh, from that uh, uh, cell therapy asset, essentially, that was already clinically validated. And do you see that there's potential to expand to other indications? And, and I, get, I guess where, my, where I'm going with this question is, is how broad a set of conditions do you think this approach might be able to address? Yeah. So this particular cell, uh, the, you know, is specific to corneal endothelial disease just by definition. Uh, but the uh, technologies that we use to manufacture the cells, uh, deliver the cells, uh, are reusable for other cell types in the eye and probably outside of the, the eye in the rest of the body. And so we are uh, w working on this, creating a portfolio of cell therapies uh, using uh, what uh, we are, the, the manufacturing process uh, and the, 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 the technological platforms that we are using for these uh, lead cell therapy programs um, to create uh, other, cell, other types of cell therapies which we think will have uh, a, a similar impact at least on how we treat blind patients. And I, I, I meant to ask this before, but I think this is a really important question, and, and that's a mechanism of action of these cells. So do, do you, it, it sounds like the, the MOA for these is that they actually engraft and then help sort of reconstitute the, the function of the damaged or diseased cells. Um, or, or the, the, you know, the other potential is that they, they don't actually engraft, but they help recruit endogenous yeah. factors and work by the paracrine effect. How do you think these cells are actually working? Well, so one of the advantages of the eye, and especially working on the cornea, is that you can image the cells uh, and you can see the cells that you uh, deliver um, non-invasively in patients. So you can apply a, a microscope to the surface of the cornea and see each individual cells. So we know for a fact that the cells that we deliver actually engraft and reconstitute the, the, the tissue that is missing in this patient. So that's one of the, the situation where the debate between, you know, whether the, the, the cell therapy actually regenerates the tissue or whether the cell therapy provides uh, trophic factors that help um, the, the, the recipient's body regenerate the missing tissue. That's where the debate actually, uh, you know, is solved. We know that in this case, we are truly regenerating the tissue. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, a big difference or a significant difference with other cell types of cell therapies, iPS derived cell therapies, for example, 
um, that are currently being uh, tried in clinical trials for the retina, where cells are delivering the retina, we still don't know for sure that the cells reconstitute uh, the, the, the dying part of the retina or whether they provide trophic factors that uh, enable whatever tissue is, uh, remains in the disease patient to close uh, the, the lesions that uh, uh, um, alter, patient, alter patient's vision. Yeah, and I think that that's a really critical point. The other point that you brought up, which I wanted to spend a, a couple of minutes on, is manufacturing. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but you know, the manufacturing is 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 absolutely critical. Uh, clearly, in the, in the particularly in the cell therapy space, um, it, it sounds like you're doing manufacturing in house. Could you talk a little bit about um, the, the manufacturing process, your decision, if you are doing it in house, to to keep it in house versus um, to manufacture externally via you know a, a contract manufacturing organization? Yeah. So as of now, we are uh, not doing it in house. Uh, there's a number of reasons for this. The, the simplest one is we need to progress as fast as we could. We really want to bring this to patients as fast as we could. And so we didn't want to delay the program by just spending time creating a manufacturing uh, um, suite inside of the company. So for now, we are using external manufacturing uh, contractors. Uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, the manufacturing process is very well controlled. Again, there's a lot of clinical validation for this cell therapy. We have uh, a lot of uh, knowledge about how to expand the cells, how to qualify the product. Uh, and so, you know, we it, it's, it makes it really easy for us to uh, transfer technology, train, and work with uh, external organizations who already have cell manufacturing suites. Uh, and so... For us, we are in a situation where we are now in a position to move really fast towards uh, clinical studies. I, I mean, it's a very exciting place to be. I, I want I to take a step back and sort of get your 30,000 know, foot point of view on where you see the field of cell therapy progressing over, let's say, the next five or 10 years. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I tend to say, I think that we are at a point in this field where we are a new wave essentially is forming a new wave of cell therapies. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the history of cell therapies, in many ways, you can say it started in the 1600s with the invention of, of blood trans, blood transfusion. First practice in, in, in dogs in first attempted in 1628, if I remember correctly. Of course, it failed for decades until it it succeeded in around 1665, 1667. Um, that was before we knew of, of HLA types and, and blood types. That was essentially the first time that this concept was tested successfully. This concept that, you know, we can replace, uh, missing tissue or defective tissue with a new tissue. What is amazing is when you look at the cell therapies that we de develop today, such as CAR T, which are again very successful. They still use many of the same concepts, uh, uh, that are used for blood transfusion. In fact, CAR-T is largely based on, on, on cell, cell uh, transfusion technologies. Uh, and, and so, you know, for, for all these cell therapies that do not require that we reconstitute a precise uh, tissue architecture, 
you know, this, this first wave of, of technology is okay, but we have to realize that, uh, you know, the, the, the promise of cell therapies will only come true if we become able to, um, rebuild complex biological structures. And so for this, we have to start something new. And that's for, for a number of, of, of years, we were in a position where we didn't really know how this was going to happen. I think that there's at least three uh, scientific and technological advances that are now giving this new wave some good momentum. Uh, the first one is new detection capabilities. So more and more, we have non-invasive ways to detect disease early. And this is very important because it means that our ability to intervene uh, uh, before tissues get too damaged is increasing. And this in turn means that the severity and scale of the damage, damage that we are trying to treat with cell therapies uh, uh, are decreasing. So more and more, we are going to catch a problem at a point where it's easier to solve. The first, the, the, the second uh, technological advance and scientific advance that is really helping form that new wave uh, is around material sciences and the creation, creation of new biomaterials. Uh, we've seen it in, in, a, in the past few years that really uh, a lot of a lot of effort has uh, gone towards making these new biomatrices, these new biomaterials that we can use to uh, control the environment of the cell therapies that we deliver in the body, and that helps us, of course, direct tissue re tissue regeneration, but also form much more complex architectures. And the third uh, advance. Uh, of course, is, is advances in, in software and hardware, uh, specifically high-precision pre robotics and, and machine learning. This is really also critical because in many organs, the eye is a, is a great example, uh, human motor capabilities will not be precise enough to enable us to deliver cells and recreate fully functional tissue architecture. So in the eye, if you want to recreate a tissue, a few microns, a mistake of a few microns make, makes a huge uh, uh, difference in terms of efficacy and in terms of patient's uh, uh, quality of life, essentially. And so we want the next wave of cell therapies to actually be, if, if we want the next uh, wave to be safe and efficacious, we also need to think about how we are going to augment our surgeons' motor capabilities, how we are going to enable now the human hand, uh, the surgeon's hands, to create tissue architectures using the cells that we uh, manufacture that are precise at a certain micron sometimes uh, scale. Uh, and so we need more precise uh, robotics and we need probably uh, the surgeons to be helped by uh, this, this new AI and, and, and uh, machine learning uh, concepts. Um, and so we are trying to see startups create various combinations of these three basic concepts, so new detection, uh, new material, uh, and, and especially biomaterials, and uh, new uh, use of hardware and software. Uh, and this is also part of what we are, we are building currently at Orion. And I think that this is really the next wave in cell therapies. It's a much more uh, comprehensive, essentially, uh, uh, type of, of, of cell-based therapeutics. I think there's no question we're at a very exciting time in the field. 
Uh, well, Arno, I think we could probably talk for the next two or three days straight about uh, some of these topics, but I do want to be cognizant of your time and uh, wrap up here and say uh, a big thank you for joining me on the show today. I really appreciate your time and, and a wonderful discussion. Again, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought that was a, a great wide-ranging discussion. I really appreciate, uh, I really appreciated Arno's uh, background, you know, from his time at Rockefeller University and and uh, working at the stem cell facility there, where he was really focused on induced pluripotent stem cells to sort of building that type of platform within Novartis. Uh, and then, you know, his role at Novartis over, I think it was about 12 years, where he had a vantage point of some of the CAR-Ts that they were developing there. Uh, you heard him talk a little bit about a program for spinal muscular atrophy. So I think Ardo really has a, a great perspective on the industry as a whole. And then, of course, what they're doing at Orion, I think, is, is really exciting. And I think in many ways uh, will hopefully lead to this next wave of cell therapies that, that we're going to be seeing come to fruition here in you know, the next five or 10 years. Orion is addressing a, a large unmet need, but in some ways it seems like it's exploiting a unique opportunity with the eye. Do you think this points to a, a broadening of regenerative therapies or is this just going after some low-hanging fruit? Um, you know, I'm not sure there's any necessarily low-hanging fruit when it comes to developing, you know, novel cell and gene therapies. I mean, it's, it's all it's all extremely challenging work. I think, you know, you heard Arno talk about this idea of the, the cornea being immune privileged. So I think there are certainly a lot of advantages there. I think there are advantages as well because the cornea can be imaged relatively easily and non-invasively. So they can actually see that the cell, what the cells are doing. So you heard him talk about, they can actually see that the cells are engrafting, right? So with a lot of cell-based therapies, you know, in different locations within the body, you don't really know if they're engrafting, if they're not engrafting, what the duration looks like, if they're working by the, you know, trophic effects and recruiting endogenous factors, you know, it sounds like Arno and his team have a very clear idea of how these cells are functioning. So I think that's a huge advantage. So, you know, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to start with the eye um, in, in this situation. We also talked a little bit about, you know, allogeneic versus autologous. Again, makes sense to go after the eye here. So uh, I don't view it as low hanging fruit, but I, it seems to make a, a, a ton of sense to, to you know, develop a, a cell based therapy that is targeting, you know, a, a debilitating eye disease. One of the most interesting parts of the discussion for me was towards the end when Arno started talking about the precision involved in all this. And I think, you know, uh, tend to take a somewhat simplistic view that you grow the cells, you stick them in the eye and, and it takes care of itself. But what role does precision play in all this and, and how much technology is going to be needed to develop around these types of therapies to really get them to work well? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I, I think our, our no, you know, brought up the, you know, I think he mentioned if, if the cells are off by a few microns, that makes a huge difference. And, um, you know, I hadn't necessarily thought about that before, but clearly, you know, placement of the cells when it, when it comes to the cornea or elsewhere is, is, is critical. So I think developing additional technologies that can help surgeons make sure that they're placing the cells in the exact right place is going to be critical, uh, not only for their, you know, immediate and longer term safety, but for the efficacy of those cells too. And then the durability of those cells over a, you know, a long time frame. So um, it's not just the, the, the development of the cell therapy itself. There's a lot of other enabling types of tools and technologies that need to be developed in conjunction with the cell therapies to actually deliver them uh, effectively. So I think that's a, that's a really critical point. How big a limitation do you think price for these therapies are? And 
does Orion's approach give you hope that they can address that issue? Uh, it, it does. I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, debate in the field, right? I mean, the autologous-based approaches are much more expensive, right? If you look at the, the CAR-Ts, they're, you know, several hundred thousand dollars uh, per course of treatment. Um, you know, those are going after relatively limited markets, right? So a limited number of patients, right? When you talk about much larger patient populations, uh, the cost is going to become prohibitive, right? There's a lot of different cell and gene therapies that are targeting sickle cell disease, for example. And that's a much larger patient population, right? So we need to bring costs down in order to deliver these therapies effectively to larger patient populations across the globe. And so, you know, the allogeneic-based approach, um, you know, particularly in the eye, I think Arno said there's about 16 million people worldwide suffering from uh, from this disease. You know, I think this represents a nice proof of concept that these types of therapies can be developed in an allogeneic fashion. We can keep costs under control and then, you know, deliver them to the patients. Um, obviously, they have a long way to go, but, you know, early clinical results are looking very promising. Do you think Orion's work says anything about the future direction of regenerative medicine? Uh, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, they're they have some some really you know novel groundbreaking work that they're pursuing here. Um, you know, the proof is it will be in you know well controlled larger clinical trials. Uh, you you heard that they're going after approval in Japan first, and it makes a lot of sense for them. That's where the technology originated. That's where the initial patients were were treated. So uh, I think you know having you know larger clinical studies is going to be you know critical. Uh, them getting approval, hopefully in Japan at some point in the relatively near future, will be critical. And then, of course, bringing the the the, the drug, uh, the, the cell therapy to the U.S. Uh, for clinical trials and approval will be critical. But yeah, I mean, I think in many ways you heard Arno talk about this this idea of this next wave of cell therapies, and I think what what he and the team at Orion Biotech are doing is exactly that, right? They are pursuing this next wave of cell therapies, and I think it represents uh, your tremendous potential. Well, until next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.